These Old Testament studies are wonderfully illuminating because they're case studies in normal and abnormal living. Any of you who ever took a course in psychology know that uh, there isn't a psychology book written that doesn't uh, uh, put in a few case studies wherein the principles that have been explained and described in the course are illustrated in terms of life in people, in living incidents. And the whole of the Old Testament is that. They are, it's filled with the most fascinating stories that are case studies in, uh, in the principles that God wishes us to know. That's why this book is so eternally fascinating. And what makes it all the more interesting is that they're sometimes hidden in enigmas and, if you like, cryptograms and crossword puzzles and riddles and other uh, cryptic uh, matters, you'll enjoy ferreting out these truths of the Old Testament. You have to read your Bible with the a book of the Old Testament in one hand and a book of the New Testament in the other, or at least figuratively so, so that uh, you compare constantly in your minds the truths that are set forth in the New Testament, finding the illustration of them in these stories. These are clinical diagnoses of common problems that every one of us is going through. Meet yourself in the Bible. You'll find your own case right here. Now, First Samuel is the story of two men, Saul and David. And these two men illustrate for us the, the two kinds of uh, Christians, of believers, the two principles at work in the heart of every individual uh, seeking to walk before God. The principle of faith and the principle of the flesh. Uh, Saul and David, the man of the flesh and the man of faith. The carnal believer and the spiritual believer. Both of these men were kings, and as such they are a beautiful description for us, an illustration to us of the supremacy of the will in human life. Each one of us is a king over a kingdom. We saw this in the book of Esther when we studied through it a number of months ago, that each one of us has been designated by God a king over a kingdom. Our will is supreme in our life. Even the Spirit of God does not violate it consciously. And we are ruling over the kingdom of our lives, our affairs, those things that concern us personally and the impact and influence that we have upon others. And what the king says and does influences the whole of the kingdom over which you reign, over which you rule. And in these two kings, we have illustrated the two principles which are in conflict in your life and in mine. We see in Saul the ruin caused by the will which is set on the flesh, what Scripture calls in Romans 8, the mind of the flesh. And the mind of the flesh always results in death. And in David, you see, beautifully illustrated, the blessing which is brought by the will which is set on the spirit, or the mind of the spirit. And in Romans 8, you remember these two things are set in direct contrast one with the other, the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh. 
And this is the book of Second Samuel, First uh, Samuel. Now the book begins with neither of these two men, but with the story of a third man, uh, Samuel, uh, who is the human expression in this verse, in this book, of the voice of God, both to Saul and to David. Just as you and I have in our lives uh, that which uh, is the expression to us of God's will in the word of God. And those men and uh, uh, leaders in the church who manifest and set forth and expound and explain the word of God. God speaks to us objectively as well as subjectively. And it's this that's manifest or that is described by Samuel. So you can divide the book of 1 Samuel by these three men. The first seven chapters give us Samuel, the life of Samuel. The chapters 8 through 15 is, uh, presents uh, to us Saul, King Saul, the man of the flesh. And then beginning with chapter 16 through chapter 31, you have in preeminence, in that section of the book, David, the man of faith the man of the spirit, the illustration of the mind of the spirit. Now, let's quickly look through this, and if you'd like to follow in a few places, we'll refer to verses. We can't dwell with these at length because we're covering the whole book and want to do so in order that we might get the full range of this message. But it begins with Samuel, first of all. This man is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. This book occurs right after the time of Judges and Ruth, when uh, Israel had passed through some 300 or more years of the rule of the judges, and during which time the little episode of Ruth, which we looked at last week, occurs. But now we are introduced to the beginning of the monarchy, and Samuel is the chosen instrument of God to uh, close out the realm of the judges and to introduce the beginning of the prophetic ministry. And the book begins, if you've read it, by the, with this wonderful story of a barren woman. Her name was Hannah. And she was the wife of a man named Elkanah. And this man had two wives, and the other one was a very prolific woman, bore many children, and she taunted and mocked Hannah in her barrenness. And the barrenness of Hannah is a very symbolic beginning of this book because it is a beautiful illustration of the spiritual state into which the people of Israel had fallen at this time. They had come to a place of utter barrenness where that which had been meant by God to produce in them the beauty and the glory of a life manifesting his his beauty and his character in order that the nations may see and the world around may see a people through whom God manifested himself, they had fallen into a state of utter infertility and barrenness and weakness. And as we begin the story of this book, we discover that the priesthood, which God had had set up to be the means by which the people would have access to him, that is the priesthood with the tabernacle and the rites and the rituals and so on, was beginning to disappear was about to fail. And the cause for this failure is a clue is found in a clue in the song that Hannah sang after her prayer to God was answered and God gave her a child. That boy was Samuel. 
And in, uh, when Samuel was born, Hannah sang a wonderful song. Every woman ought to memorize this by heart. It's a glorious song. And in the song, Hannah indicates the problem that the book of 1 Samuel is essentially concerned with. It's uh, found in verses 3 and 4. Hannah says in her song, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. And the rest of the psalm is a magnificent setting forth of the ability of God to exalt the lowly and to cast down the proud. And throughout this book, we find a conflict running in the background, intertwined through all the story of the human characters, setting forth the eternal conflict between the proud heart, which finds confidence in itself and its ability to do things, and the humble, lowly spirit that looks to God in utter dependence upon him and is therefore the recipient of all the fullness of divine blessing. That was the problem with Israel. The priesthood was failing not because there was anything wrong with the priesthood, as it was set up to be a a picture of the great priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because the people in their pride refused to uh, bow before the Lord and to come for cleansing in the, and to turn from the idolatrous worship that they had given themselves to. And as a result, the, their access to God was cut off, and now the priesthood had fallen to a low state uh, and was about to uh, pass off the picture as any effective means of mediation between the people and God. And at this time, Samuel is born. And we have this story that every child learns in Sunday school of the boy Samuel as he's brought up to the temple just as a little lad, and there he's dedicated to God. And he becomes the voice of God to Eli the priest and is given a message of judgment to declare by God. And then later on he becomes the voice of God to the nation especially to the two kings, Saul and David. But uh, the first seven chapters of this book tell us the story of how Israel falls into decay. The ark of God, the very uh, place where God himself wrote his name and where his presence dwelled, was taken captive by the Philistines and taken down into their own country. Eli the priest, because he did not make his sons obey him, which is a wonderful word of warning about juvenile delinquents today, Uh, because God said his own heart was right, but he did not restrain his sons in their evil, Uh, finds that his priesthood is taken away from him, and the ark of God goes into captivity. And when uh, the grandson of Eli is born, his mother names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And Israel reaches one of the lowest states uh, in its national history. Now at this time, we read of the entrance of King Saul into the picture. In chapter 8, we have the demand of the people that they be given a king like all the other nations. And in verse 4, we're told of chapter 8 that all the elders of Israel gathered together 
and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. And here we find the uh, the uh, the presentation of that principle of the flesh that is at work in this nation to destroy its communion and its fellowship and its enjoyment of God's blessing. Just as we find interwoven in every Christian life the same principle. And it is expressed in many ways. And these are indicated clearly throughout this book. Here's the first one. That there be given a an authority like all the other nations. In other words, that the desire of the flesh is to be religious but to make the religious expression like that of the world around about. And as we saw in the news flashes that were given here by our Drew Pearson before the meeting, uh, before the message, uh, this is what's at work in the world today. A principle which is seeking to take the things of God and the activity of God in the midst of his people and keep it religious outwardly, but identify it with the ways and the principles of activity of the world around. We want to conduct our business like the rest of the world does. We want to interject the principles of business acumen into the conduct of the church. We, we wish to adopt the salesmanship tactics of the world. We no longer rely upon the strategy of the Holy Spirit, but we appoint a committee to plan out the program that we ask God to come now and bless and make it work, our program, instead of his. And so there is a continual principle at work, as reflected here, in the rejection of the authority and the sovereignty of God and a desire to be ruled like all the nations all around. Well, this request was granted by God. And if you look at verse uh, 6, you'll see that uh, the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us, because he knew that this was not God's program. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds which they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, hearken to their voice. Uh, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And this is always the way of God. I think one of the greatest lessons we can learn in the spiritual life is that if we want something bad enough, God will give it to us. But we ought to be prepared to face the consequences. That uh, God's methods with man is never to say an ultimate no, but to say to him, you may have what you want, but you will have to take the results along with it. This is true in everything about life, isn't it? It isn't just true in the religious realm. It's true about every, every avenue and every area of life. If I have before me here 
two uh, glasses filled with a liquid that both look like water. One of them is water and the other is a poison. I have a choice that I can make between drinking the poison or the water. But if I choose to drink the poison, I no longer have any choice over what happens. The results of drinking poison are inevitable upon me then. I cannot avoid them. Once I have made the choice, then I must take the results. And all through the scriptures we find this is the way God deals with us. He says if we want something bad enough, we can have it. But when we get it, we won't want it. If we start hungering and thirsting and clamoring after what we want, instead of relying upon God to give us what we need, as these people did, we will discover that what we want is no longer what we want. And uh, the, our only recourse is at last to come back to God in repentance and, and ask him to give us what we need. I'll never forget uh, hearing Dr. Ironside tell of an incident in the life of dear old Dr. William Evans, the father of Louis Evans of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church, who was pastor there for so long. And uh, Dr. Evans told how one, uh, one day his little girl, who was about eight years of age, came to home, and she said to him, Daddy, she said, I want to buy, I want to get some ball-bearing skates. She said, you know, uh, all the other children have ball-bearing skates, and that's what I want. And he said, well, but, but my dear, you have a pair of skates. And she said, yes, I know, Daddy, but they're not ball-bearing skates. They're roller-bearing skates. And you can't go as fast on roller-bearing skates as you do on the others. And he was a minister and uh, didn't have uh, too great an income. And so he said, well, my dear, I'm afraid you'll have to make out with the roller-bearing skates. We simply can't afford to, to buy any others right now. But she wouldn't let him be. She kept after him. And that night when he came home from from uh, uh, his work, there was a little note at his place on the table. And when he unfolded it, it said, Dear Daddy, I still want the ball-bearing skates. And when he went to bed at night, there was another note pinned to his pillow. that <laughs> said, Daddy, would you buy me some ball-bearing skates? Well, he did what we would have done. He went down and bought the ball-bearing skates. I don't know how. He didn't have a Bank of America card to put it on then. But he scraped up the money somehow and got the ball-bearing skates. And he brought them home. And when he gave them to her, she was delighted. And she threw her arms around his neck and hugged him and kissed him and thanked him. And then she put on the ball-bearing skates and started out the, the gate and down, and down the sidewalk around the corner. And that was the last time they ever saw her alive. Because as she went around the corner, the skates were too much for her. And as she turned the corner, she slipped with them and fell down, hitting her head against the sidewalk. And when they brought her home in a coma, she they took her to the hospital. But she died before the night was out. And he used to say, so many times since then, I thought to myself, when I wanted something of God, and it seemed as though he was not willing that I should have it. And I kept crying out for it and insisting that I have something that was like what the others had. He said, the Spirit of God would remind me, are you asking for ball-bearing skates? And this is what happened in Israel. 
It's a principle at work in all of our life. Now we have the story of Saul that follows here. And what a tremendous story this is. I hope you'll trace this out in detail. I can't possibly spend time with it. But it's a fascinating story of a young man who, like so many young people today, was living his life without any regard or any concern for what God wanted him to do. It didn't trouble him. He was busy with his father. They were in the donkey business together. And uh, donkeys take a lot of uh, tending. And uh, he and his father were busy taking care of their donkeys. And Samuel uh, and uh, was running the country and judging it, and they were le- they left it. They were glad to leave that all up to him. But Saul and his father were busy with the donkeys. And it's wonderful to trace God's dealing with this man, how he reached him. How do you think he did? When here's a young man who who shuts God out of his thinking, who has no time for him, has no interest in him. We all know people like that. How do you think God reached him? Well, he did the very obvious thing. He went into the donkey business himself. He lost Saul's donkeys for him. And when the donkeys strayed away, Saul was vexed. He thought it was nothing more than somebody left the pasture gate open. But he set out to look for the donkeys. And when he... Uh, was away looking for them. He came after a long search and a fruitless search. He came to the town where Samuel lived. And he was about to go on back home and give the search up for, for, for lost when his servant said to him, let's go up and ask this man of God who lives here where the donkeys are. And Samuel, or Saul was not very anxious to do this. He was Anxious to stay away, as far away from the prophet as possible, because prophets were very disturbing kind of people. And uh, he wanted to get back home. But the servant prevailed on him, and they went up to see Samuel. And to Saul's amazement, Samuel was expecting him, because God had said to him the day before that there would be a young man named Saul appearing on his doorstep. And Saul, uh, Samuel had a great dinner prepared for Saul, with 30 invited guests, and Saul, to his bewilderment and consternation found himself as the guest of honor. And he hardly knew what was happening. Those plague-troublesome donkeys had got him into all this business, and he he wanted to get out of it as fast as possible. But Samuel took him aside as he was, uh, after they finished the dinner, and he announced to him a stunning uh, announcement. He said, God has anointed you to be the king over Israel. Saul had went out looking for donkeys and ended up finding himself the anointed king over Israel. And he wasn't interested in the job at all. But Samuel told him that he would have a sign, three signs, in fact, that would indicate that God was with him. And he sent him home, and sure enough, each one of these signs was fulfilled, one, two, three, just as Samuel went along. And one of them was that he would meet a band of prophets, and when he saw them, the Spirit of God would come upon him, and Saul himself would begin to prophesy. And when, when that happened, and Saul began to prophesy along with all the other seminary students who were in the school of the prophets, the word went out through all of Israel that Saul, they said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Is the son of Kish also one of the prophets? One of those amazing things. And Samuel went back to his home, or Saul went back to his home, And he met his uncle on the way, and his uncle said to him, what's been happening? And Saul said, well, I went out looking for the donkeys, 
And I ran into Samuel, and Samuel told me that the donkeys are safe at home. But he, it says particularly that he didn't say a word about the anointing and of the new commission that God had given to him. Because here was a man who was out to make the most out of life for himself. And he was not interested in what God wanted him to do, except as he could use God for his own purposes. So he said nothing about that. But Samuel wasn't through. And as we read on, we, we find that uh, Samuel said to all Israel that he's hearkened to their voice, and God has told him that he would give put a king over them according to their desire. And so he calls all the people together. And they take lots as to who the king shall be. And the lot is cast first upon the tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin is taken. And then upon the family group, and the family of Kish is taken. And then upon the individual, and the family, the individual in that family group was Saul, the son of Kish. And then the word went out, where is Saul? And no one could find him anywhere. And finally, as they looked, somebody said, he's down hiding among the baggage. And sure enough, as they went down there and looked, they found Saul among the baggage. Now, why was he hiding? Was it because he was so modest that he didn't want to have anybody uh, make this much fuss over him? Was it because he was shy and diffident and hardly liking this public view? No, the record indicates that Saul was hiding there because he was finding it rather inconvenient to do what God wanted. He wasn't interested in this job at all. He wanted to live his own life the way he wanted to live it. And he was trying to get away from the call of God. But God called him and he was taken and crowned king. And as he stood among the people, the people all raised a great shout and said, What a king, what a king. Head and shoulders above everyone else. Handsome as he could be. Young, handsome, uh, a very very wise young man in many ways. uh, Fair-minded, seeking justice. And he looked like the very picture of a king. But as you read on, you discover that there's a trouble with the Ammonite people up in the north and Samuel or Saul sends out word to all the people of Israel to gather together and to his great delight, uh, 36,000 people respond to his call. And he marshals them in three groups and they march up and fall upon the Ammonites and utterly destroy them in a great victory. And Saul begins to feel that maybe this matter of of serving God is, is going to be all right after all. Maybe he can use it for his own advancement. And uh, this matter of being king is a, has, has some aspects of it that, that are not bad. And uh, in the next chapter, we're introduced then to the next battle that he faces. And this time it's with the Philistines. But it isn't up against, uh, he isn't up against just a mere tribe of people like the Ammonites who were, who were tough in their own limited area. But now he's up against the nation, which was in that day the equivalent of the Soviet Union or the United States or one of the major powers of the world, the Philistine nation. And the Philistines, when they heard of the little difficulty that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had caused, sent out the news throughout their nation and 30,000 chariots of iron and 6,000 horsemen 
and a multitude of people that were so vast that even the Philistines couldn't number them, came up against Saul. And when he looked out his window and saw this great horde of people advancing upon him, he realized that this job of being king was not as delightful as it might be. So he sent out the word throughout all of Israel, expecting, of course, that the people would rally to his support as they had against the Ammonites. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And finally, a thousand people showed up, and then another thousand, and then another thousand, which happened to be the 3,000-man standing army that he had selected. And he kept waiting for the others to come. And no more, no more came. And he looked at this pitiful crowd of 3,000 soldiers against that mass multitude of the tremendous forces of the Philistine. And he sent for Samuel. And uh, Samuel told him to wait there at Gilgal until he could come and offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Because this is always the way with the man of flesh. He depends upon his own resources until he gets into trouble. But when he gets into trouble, he calls on the Lord. But uh, God was, was ahead of Saul, as usual, and Samuel delayed his coming. And when Samuel kept delaying and kept delaying, Saul kept watching his soldiers, and one by one they began to slip away and go back home. So that the 3,000 dwindled to 2,000 and to 1,000. And there were less than 1,000, about 600 men left. And by this time, Saul was getting desperate. And when Samuel hadn't come after five or six days, Saul took upon himself to offer the burnt offering. And he went in and offered the burnt offering. And uh, as soon as he'd finished, Samuel came walking up. And the old prophet was stern-faced. And he said to him, what have you been doing? And Saul said, well, I waited for you. And when I saw that the people were disappearing and going back to their homes, he said, I thought I ought to take action. So I, I finally forced myself to do this. I, I went through this ceremony. I knew that we didn't dare go out to battle without going through this, some kind of this ritual. And uh, since you weren't here, I did it myself. And in verse uh, 14 of chapter, what is it, uh, 12, no, chapter 14, excuse me. Uh, chapter 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, we read, And now your Samuel said to him, Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Saul's kingdom was thus prophesied to be taken from him. Now, we read on quickly. And find the victory of Jonathan and the altar that Saul erected after God in a great victory through the faith of Jonathan had delivered the people against this vast horde of, of Philistines. And when at last uh, the battle was won, Saul built an altar 
It's the first altar we're specifically told that King Saul had ever built. Because here's a man who thinks that the outward uh, marks of faith are all that's necessary. If you go through the outward ritual, if you belong to a church, if you sing the hymns, if you say the right things and confess the right creed, that's all that God is expecting. That's the principle of the man of the flesh. But God says when you act on that basis, your rule over your life is taken away. You no longer have authority in your kingdom. You no longer have the right to dominion over that which God has intended you should have dominion. You become the victim and the slave of an inexorable force that will grind you under its heel and bring you into subjection. And this is what every man or woman who lives by the flesh discovers. That when we yield ourselves servants to that which we obey, as Paul puts it in Romans 7, we become the slaves of that thing. This is what happened to, uh, to Saul. And though he builds an altar at last, and God brings him down below on his knees, he gives him one last chance. He says to him in chapter 15, the opening of this chapter, the Lord, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore hearken to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to the Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And this was God's last chance, in a sense, given to Samuel. Because if Samuel, if Saul rather, given to Saul, because if Saul had obeyed this, he would have demonstrated he was ready to allow the cross to do its work against the flesh, to crucify it, to put it to death. Amalek is a beautiful picture throughout all of scripture of the principle of the flesh, which opposes the things of God. Remember, Haman in the book of Esther, is an Amalekite. And uh, Amalek was that people which, of which God had said to Israel, Remember, Amalek, what they did to you, and never forget them. For God shall have war with Amalek unto all generations. He'll never make peace with Amalek. And Saul was given this commission to go out. And we read in verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, is east of Egypt. But he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But, but, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless in whose eyes they utterly destroyed. I wonder if it wasn't the donkeys that Saul wanted to save. He appreciated farm animals. He said, why should we, why should we destroy these perfectly good animals? He presumed to find something good in what God had declared utterly bad. And this is always the principle of the flesh. 
It presumes to find something good in that part of our lives which God declares is totally, utterly unacceptable unto him. Put off, therefore, the old man with his ways of jealousy and perverseness and bitterness and envy and jealousy and anger and and uh, intemperance and selfishness and all these things. But the mind of the flesh says, oh, some of this is worth keeping. I can hardly be a real personality if I don't have something, if I don't have a hot temper, if I don't tell people off once in a while. And so we presume to find good in what God has declared back. Well, the result was, Samuel came and said to him, How have you been doing? Saul said, Oh, wonderful. I've done everything the Lord said. I killed all the Amalekites and destroyed everything as the Lord said. And Samuel cocked his ear and said, What does that, what do I hear? What's that sound of bleating and lowing outside the window? What are these animals out here? And Saul said, Well, <clears throat> uh, it's true. Uh, there are a few I spared because I thought that God would be pleased if I dedicate them to him. That's always the excuse, isn't it? What we, deserve, what we desire to keep, we dedicate to God. We say, you know, we really didn't need a, a more beautiful home and more luxurious furniture, but we've decided that we'd use it for God. So we've dedicated it to him. And this is what Saul did. And Samuel said, though you were little in your own eyes, God made you to be the head of the tribes of Israel. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. But Samuel said, has the Lord great delight, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And no man can walk in authority and in the freedom of, uh, that God intended for the, children of, uh, for the children of God when he rejects the authority of the Spirit of God in his life. Well, that's primarily the story of Saul. And the next chapter, chapter 16, takes us to David, the man after God's own heart. This story is so familiar to us, I'll not dwell on it in detail. Just uh, six outstanding points in this, and we won't have time to look them up. I hope you'll, you'll look these out for yourself, because these are tremendous lessons in this story. There's no part of Scripture in the Old Testament that is more illuminating to us, I think, than the Story of David in his rejection, in his exile. But here is David. You remember how he was chosen uh, from one of the from the eight sons of Jesse, the youngest of the eight, and how the seven passed before Samuel, and they all looked like uh, uh, kings in the making until. But God said to each one, uh, to Samuel about each one, "This is not the one I've chosen," and at last. Here comes the youngest one and the skinniest one was David. And God put his seal upon him, not according to outward appearance, but according to God's look at the heart. And David was not set on the throne immediately as Saul was, but he was tested and proved by struggle and by adversity. 
And this is the principle God always follows with a man who learns to walk by faith. He puts him through a time of obscurity and of testing and of problems where everything seems to go against him until at last he comes to the place where he recognizes the great principle by which God's activity is always carried on that man can do nothing in himself but only in complete and utter dependence upon the God who indwells him. This is what David learned, even as a shepherd boy out on the hillsides, so that he could say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters, and so forth. And then we come to the testing of David when he comes face to face with the giant Goliath. You remember how Israel was held in fear and and cowardice and impotence by this giant who paraded himself up and down between the armies as they were gathered there and taunted and mocked the impotence of the Israelites. And no one dared to do a thing about him. He strutted in arrogant pride up and down, beating his chest and and uh, uh, taunting the Israelites and demanding they send someone out to fight him. And no one dared to stir. And when little David came visiting the flock, uh, the um, armies to bring food to his brothers from his flocks. He found the whole camp of Israel plunged into gloom and despair. And he came in and said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the armies of the living God? That's always the outlook of faith. Never takes any, any look at the circumstances. All it says, uh, it takes a look at them, but only to say, uh, who are these against the God of might who is at work amongst us? And uh, as uh, word is brought to Saul of this young man in his midst, Saul asks David what he wants to do, and David says, I'll go out and fight him. And you remember Saul put his armor upon David. And Saul was about a foot and a half taller than David, and the arm, armor on the young lad began to clank and uh, get in the way, and David tried to move around and couldn't even take a step, and finally said, bring a can opener and get me out of this. I can't do a thing in this. And you know the story, how he went down to the brook and he got five smooth stones. Why five? Why five? Well, a little later on in the book of Second Samuel, you'll learn that Goliath had four brothers. That's why he took five. He was prepared for the whole family. And he went out, he slew, threw the sling around his head and let go. And as you remember, uh, Saul, uh, Goliath fell to the ground, a stone right between his eyes. As someone has said, his last words were, nothing like this has ever entered my mind before. <laughs> and down he went. Perished. And David took Saul's, uh, Goliath's own sword and cut off his head. What a glorious picture this is. Of him who faced the great enemy of mankind face to face and slew him with his own sword. We read in, in Hebrews that by the, by death, the Lord Jesus slew him that had the power of death, even the devil. And uh, David becomes here a picture of Christ, not only of, of Christ, but a picture also of the believer, because 
The believer lives the life of Christ. Well, we can't dwell with that picture. Much great lessons in that. But this is followed by the jealousy of Saul. And from chapter 18 on, we have the story of the growing jealousy on Saul's part and his persecution of David. And this is nothing more than the illustration lived out for us of the principle that Paul declares in Galatians 4, verse 29. He says, At that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And uh, Saul persecuted David and tried to kill him. And it was during this time that David wrote so many of the psalms, those wonderful psalms that speak of God's faithfulness in the midst of distressing conditions. Then David was pursued and finally exiled. And uh, we find him uh, in, driven away from the presence of Saul. And in chapter 21 and chapter 22, we find the fullness of God's abundant provision made for him in his exile. He is given the very bread, the holy bread off the tabernacle, the bread of the presence of God, which uh, is a picture for us of that secret ministering to our needs that is the part of everyone who is undergoing difficulty and problem and yet looks to God for deliverance. There is given to him the hidden bread, the bread from the, from the table of the Lord himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. As I live by the Father, he who eats me shall live by me. And also in chapter 22, you see that the prophet uh, Gad was uh, with David in his exile, and the priest Abiathar was with him, so that the full testimony that God intended for his people was present with David. He was the king, he had a prophet, and he had a priest. And all of this was his available to him, even though he was hunted like a bird upon the mountains. Just as some of you, in trouble and in difficulty, uh, hardly able to work out your problems yourself, yet can find in turning unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, all that it takes to supply and to keep you and to bring you through the time of trouble into the place of God's open door for you. This is what happened to David. There's the refusal on his part to act for himself. Twice he spares Saul as, he, as God delivers him into his hand. And he shows this remarkable spirit of faith in which he waits for God to work out his problem. He doesn't take on the solution to it himself. And at last we come to the end of the book where we see the end of the man of flesh. Saul descending to witchcraft as he calls up the witch of Endor and tries to determine the mind of the Lord when the Spirit of God has departed from him. And there's nothing but blankness and barrenness. He doesn't know which way to turn. And in his desperation, he descends to that which was utterly forbidden, the, the, the people of God. He calls up a witch. And he, he tries to, he gets her to call.